Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged, that people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. All right, are you guys ready for this one? I just got done speaking with Thomas Lantaler, and he's an experienced international crisis leader. Crisis leader. He's also a facilitator, which you guys know since I've been in Europe, I'm hanging out with facilitators because they're groovy. And his expertise is managing crisis in over 30 countries for the last 20 years, yet he's so incredibly humble. It's like, oh, I I don't have much training. I'm like, uh. (laughs) He is the founder and CEO of the Crisis Compass. It's a cross-sectoral consultancy that acts as a partner and guide to companies that that are really interested in working with a crisis with this lens towards innovation, like using the crisis to innovate. He advises leaders on like all aspects of human-centered crisis management and decision-making and kind of crisis preparedness. Um, And you'll hear why I had him on, but he made me cry. So that's what I want you to remember. If you want to hear me cry, it's the second podcast episode where someone got me to ball. It won't sound like it's heading in that direction on the front end, but it sure goes there. So listen in. Thomas Lantaler, an Austrian living in Norway. Okay, Thomas Lantaler, I'm going to tell you why I'm inviting you onto the podcast and you're going to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing. Two things. You talk about crisis with a, and then the second you do it with a smile on your face. Swear to God. Like you have this, like, I'm like, how can somebody talk about crisis and do so with sparkly eyes and a big smile on their face? And now I find out you're from Austria, which I'm going to pick on Austrians on this show. I'm going to tell you something. I want to hear all about it. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, tell us about kind of where you are in the world now and what your reason for being is at this point in your life. Okay. Uh, well, first, first and foremost, thanks. Now I know why I'm on the show. Um, and I take this as a, I take this as a huge compliment. Um, first and foremost, being invited here, but then also why you invite me here because um, that, I haven't heard that before. And if that's a perception, that's great. Uh, where am I in the world? Well, I you already mentioned it. I'm Austrian, but I'm not living there anymore. I haven't lived there for almost half my life. Figured out um, because it. I was always drawn uh, abroad. Um, started working after my studies rather quickly in in international humanitarian work, meaning like moved around in different conflict and and disaster areas. Um, but later on, after what was it 12, 13 years, um, my partner and I we decided to take a little bit of a break. She's from Norway, I'm from Austria. We had a discussion where we were to go. Um, I didn't, I wasn't ready to go back home, so 
I said, well, why not Norway? Um, we did this. The idea was to do this for a year, and that was 11 years ago. I mean, well, we have we're settled here with two wonderful kids, um, and seems like I'm going to be stuck here for a while. Still getting out here and there, not not to disaster emergency zone so much anymore. But I travel a lot for my work, and I consider myself also being sort of a I, I want to be a global citizen in that sense. So I'm trying to be that. Well, there's so many pieces that I could reflect on, but I'm going to reflect on the piece related to your work. Um, although, no, I'm going to ask the one. Do you speak Norwegian now? I speak Norwegian now, yeah. You do. So, so it wasn't amazed. so difficult with a, with a, as a German speaker. There's a lot of similarities. So they, it okay. lies somewhere between German and English. Um, they, got lit, they got rid of a lot of grammar, uh, which we are known for as German speakers. And there's a lot of similar words, right, to okay. both languages. So, so you can say, good yule, tak yeah, perfect. Perfect. Flashigul. You speak Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> Just the important things. <laughs> well, that gets you. That gets you very far here. I can tell you. <laughs> so, um, you you just said something, and you said when I was in crisis locations around the world. Unfold that for me. What were you doing? I was. I started off as for my basically with my my background is conflict and peace studies. So I was one of these geeks that went into all different conflict analysis methods and, and uh, was really fascinated by the topic. So I ended up working in, in conflict zones first. So Afghanistan, I was, I was in South Africa where I had a, a volunteer job, which still to this day, I think is the best job that I've ever had. Um, and, and then you get, you get a little bit of the, it shapes your profile. So it's, it's a person that can live and work in conflict environments. What I did there was I worked with, with local organizations to show them different approaches to how to deal with conflict other than the ones that they're dealing with. Not say what's better or worse, but just showing them alternatives to, to a lot of uh, methods and means that, that were rather limited. We're also in, uh, in some ways uh, quite imbalanced when it comes to, for example, uh, genders. Right? When I take Afghanistan, it was a very male-dominated society and also conflict resolution there is very male-dominated. So women hardly have a say there. In the worst cases, young girls are even used as, as a means of conflict resolution, right? So there's a lot of these stories. So we just, uh, at the beginning, I, I worked a lot with, with trying to show them alternative ways to how to deal with conflict. Um, later on, that work since Afghanistan is a bit of a context where it's not only conflict, there's also humanitarian needs, like uh, there's, there's food issues, there's um, a, lot of, a lot of violence issues, there's you know, sanitation, water, uh, those are all issues that's labeled, labeled broadly the humanitarian needs. Um, and since this is so closely linked, I'm more and more drifted into that. And from then onwards, it was rather crisis management that I did, crisis response and crisis management, whether that was an earthquake or whether that was tsunami or similar things. What made you even want to, I mean, people hear the word crisis and they run for the hills. That's not usually the direction they're walking toward. What made you want to walk towards this topic? First and foremost, it was fascination and curiosity, if I'm very honest. And of course, also the drive. I mean, the, the, I think we all, everybody who works in this field has an underlying drive of helping um, and wanting to help and, and do good. But there's also things that, I mean, honestly, there's things that are not so often discussed, which is, for example, the adrenaline kick. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, working in in these uh, in these zones, it gives you an adrenaline kick. So you are really you you feel like you're doing something very very important. You have an immediate reward. Um, 
So whether it's 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 often just a very small impact, and I think that's important to also keep in mind. That's not I, we and for for younger ones that I work with, I often say like um, the best advice that I ever got was, if you make a small difference with just one person, we've already made a difference. But because we very often came in and it was I was on the forefront of this, saying like I'm going to change the world to a better place, and of course that's a, that's an overly ambitious, and it also is a sets you up for failure. Um, so I really. It, it becomes a bit addictive at work, and in, in, in very, uh, if I'm very honest. And I mean, it's rewarding, but it's also it's a kick. And at the same time, I'm a person that functions with chaos. So I, the fewer rules I have, the better it is for me because I can think freely. I'm not. I, I don't feel being confined in my thinking, my ideas, my creativity. So in a weird way, in those contexts, I thrive. Um, and now I'm doing less of that because my priorities have changed, but. But this is basically why I got into it and why I stayed in that world for, for quite a while. Well, now I know the third reason why I had you on the podcast, because I'm built like you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm built like you. Okay. Well, and I'm curious then, if chaos is something that's enlivening for you, parenthood has had to have been difficult because suddenly you're like a kid's nap schedule suddenly dictates your life. I mean, was that a hard transition? It was a hard transition for for a number of reasons. Um, one was sure it's your life is dictated by someone else than you. I uh, would actually broaden that that thing. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it's still still a lot of chaos. Don't get me wrong. And I mean, my kids are uh, they're still quite small. They're eight and uh, eight and three now. Um, so there is a lot of chaos and there's a lot of unpredictability. But I, I have the transition was was huge for me. Um, it was also from having responsibility for myself and being able to go to these contexts to all of a sudden have responsibility for other people um, and uh, who really depend on me. And that, that was also the, the reason why I changed basically jobs later on and moved out of it because my last, my last mission was 2017 and my son by then was already three years old and I really struggled to, to relate to what happened back home because when I'm in these contexts, I'm completely immersed, 150 percent there. I have no no capacity for anything else, and that didn't feel good, didn't feel right. Um, and back to your question, I I struggled a bit in the beginning, not not being a father, but like, what's going to be my father role? Like, how am I going to play this out? And um, I also had the ambition of being this super relaxed father without any rules, and it's all going to be organic. And it's not quite that. Um, but I, I still, what I've done in the past year and a half, two years, I have actually turned it around and see like, so if this, if this is how it is, what can I learn from it? And I've since really observed my children intensely for things, skills, behavior, because as I said in my TED talk last year, I had, um, I had a, almost a, a, a revelation when I, when I realized, well, they, they are actually crisis managers in practice because they're living in a context that they know very little about which change with the rule changes. It's not their rules. The rules changes all the time. They have new encounters all the time. They learn constantly new things. Um, and how do they navigate it? How do they manage it? And it was really this, this perspective that I took. And, and that's, all, that's a bit how I look at them now, not only from a crisis management angle, but simply from, I don't think there's more pure learning than watching children. And there's so much we can learn from that. And not only necessarily learn, but but remember that you actually feel like that. Um, so this is a little bit the angle I take. And it was a huge transition, but I'm trying to make the best out of it now. 
there's such a serendipity in what you're saying right now because just i told you just before we got on i went for a jog and when i was running i was thinking gosh there's all these leadership books and all people need to do is read a book on raising teenagers if they want to be a good leader because teenagers are basically like your worst employee and if you can learn to do that well <laughs> um you can manage anyone <laughs> so when you were talking about what you can learn from kids because my sons are 13 and 15 now and i'm learning so much from them i'm like oh my god wow how to not disempower someone and how to give them a voice yeah. but how to still give them guidelines so that there isn't total chaos yada yada but you just made me want to learn just this last little bit that you just said about watching your kids and you said yeah you know they're constantly dealing with crisis because the rules are changing and they've never done this before. So now I want to learn from you, Tom. I'm like, oh my gosh, please teach me. Well, what is crisis? Like, I don't even know really what it is, except for, I guess I manage it in the couple's work I do all day long, but I don't really have an education like you. So what is crisis? Uh, I, I also don't really have an education. I think I just, I, I love, a lot of what I talk about and a lot of what I what I wrote about is is my experience. And I'm also very clear on this. This is not, I mean, yes, I have, of course, read books. I have studied a little bit around it, but I wouldn't call that education. This is just one, gave me a few perspectives on it. Crisis for me is, is too mystified, in, in all honesty. I think it's... Um, I think it's way simpler than we make it to be. Uh, originally, the term, this has, has been mentioned several times over the past few years, is was basically a decision point. And nothing has much changed from that. It's only that our experience of the way the word was used over the past decades and maybe centuries has given it a very negative taste. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's nothing else than we have to make a decision, whether we continue, whether we uh, implement a new solution, or whether we don't do, do anything. It's all decisions. And going back to that, it takes a little bit out the heaviness of it. So for me, crisis is a period where we are aware that we have to make decisions. So there's not, there's not really a way out anymore. Uh, and and with that, without without judging it, like whether it's a good or a bad situation, but often what happens is it leads to extreme change and that's what scares us. So these decisions, because we have no choice anymore, they lead to a change and it's required that something needs to change. And that's what's the scary part for us. And that's also why we often delay these decisions and end up in a corner where we're in a squeeze and then it feels like we're pressured. So there's a lot of, in a way, crisis, a lot of homemade problems, if you want. Uh, and sure, there's external, there's external events, but a crisis is not an event. A crisis is the, the, basically the aftermath of it. So if there's an earthquake, there's many earthquakes around the world all the time. But if the system wasn't um, set up for it, well, whether, whether the houses were constructed badly or there's no health system in place, or then it becomes a crisis. The earthquake itself is maybe just a trigger. And now I'm talking big because we can also go into their own household relationship. Yeah, you might you might know or think about it a year before you get to the point like, okay, I'm going to leave you now or not. Um, the first thoughts are already maybe we should address something. It doesn't have to be leaving, but maybe we can do something about it. And similar to almost all crises that are labeled as such, you have chances and opportunities before, and it's they hardly come without a warning. Um, the trigger comes without a warning, but not the, the effect. So that's that's what crisis is for me. So it's basically just a moment where decisions have to be made. So what I'm hearing is that there's like some kind of inflection point that mm. sort of forces your hand a little bit to make a decision that you might have been sweeping under the carpet previously. But this inflection point says, uh, no, you got to like make a decision now. 
more often than not, this inflection point is actually when somebody puts, when somebody takes the word crisis in their mouth. Because uh-huh. there was a refugee movement in Europe long before it was labeled a crisis. Um, there, there were lots of, you know, whether it's health systems, whether it's other things, so there are lots of, lots of um, indicators that something needs to change or we need to make a decision about a change. But the moment it's labeled crisis, there's an elevation in, in uh, well, in this necessity, there's, a, there's an urgency that comes in. And it's also, there's also this misconception that all of a sudden when you say crisis, there's no time anymore. If it's not a life or death crisis, not somebody's dying in front of you, there's always time. Can't say how much there is, but there's always time to get a bit of an overview and an understanding, what are my options here? And, and that's what's, what's, there's so many misconceptions with the turn. So I actually advocate with the companies that I work with in the trainings that I do for people to eliminate the term. Don't talk about crisis because also what is it at the end of the day that the word crisis really informs us about? Nothing. It's just a label. And the, and the problem is everything that's in the label or that we put in the label is, is based on our interpretation of it. So whatever crisis means for us, just the term is put into that that word when we hear it and that adds a lot of weight so if we have a very negative image or if we have experienced a lot of negative things we will when we hear the word crisis our reaction will probably be stronger than when i hear it i have worked in these settings i'm not so triggered by that word so and and also when it comes to the solution just labeling something a crisis or a electricity crisis doesn't necessarily give us any information what to do it just it just adds a label to it Okay, this crisis has something to do with electricity, maybe. So there is, I, I, I personally think it's not necessary because it doesn't add, doesn't add much information. And it, on the contrary, it sometimes makes it more difficult to work with a situation because all of a sudden it's so urgent. Um, and that can be tricky. A thought just came up for me, which is, hmm, you know, and I'm taking this therapist lens. I was, I was wondering as you were talking, what makes somebody use the word crisis? And there are so many different selves, selves inside of us. Mm-hmm. There's the self that wants to have power and influence. So I might use the word crisis because it provokes. But then there's another self that might have some personal trauma. So I use the word crisis because I'm really scared, right? Mm-hmm. This is what comes up in me. And I ha- I'm just imagining you in this context. How do you balance all of these different selves that come up when there could be somebody that's just power hungry, trying to influence a rushed decision? Let's be quick about it. Let's be yeah. urgent versus somebody who say, no, it's crisis to me because I'm really scared. This really is scary to me. It's, it's a constant balance. Uh, it starts with, it always, every crisis starts with, with me or like in my case, right? Or with you in your case, if you are facing it. So with ourselves in that sense, because that's, we're dealing with it or we are affected by it or we are in a situation where we have to make decisions or handling it. So it doesn't matter. We're, if we are in a crisis system, then we're somehow affected by it, whether as a power stakeholder or as, as a person who just sees the, the effects of it. And there's lots of voices there. They're always there. And I think for me, it's, it's, it starts with self-reflection. So when I was in these situations, uh, in the beginning, I was really a cowboy. I, I went in and I'm like, yeah, we're going to do this. I thought I had endless energy. That was, of course, the adrenaline fooling me. Um, and I just didn't take any time to neither reflect on my emotions, because particularly in the context that I worked in, you're, you're confronted with so many impressions that you have 
there's no way you can digest that. It takes you long after that. But if you're not even giving it space there and then, it just really piles up and it will just hit you full force at one point. Um, the other thing is the, the pressure, underestimating how much, how much pressure and how much weight are in these decisions. And if I didn't acknowledge that, I, was, I would rush into the decision. But what I have learned over the years is that, that, and that's why I also said before, there's always time to make time and space for emotions for everybody in your team, uh, people you're working with, people affected, and your own, at least. And there's nothing wrong with that. I hear often crisis managers and, and particularly experienced crisis managers, oh, you have to make rational decisions and you have to be rational all the time. I can guarantee you in my, in my career of over 15 years managing crisis globally, I've never taken a rational decision in my life. And that doesn't mean I have taken an intuitive decision. But no, it's an illusion to not be emotional in these situations. I, I couldn't. I mean, if saying that would be really misleading. And I don't think anybody can. Because there lies a lot of pressure on you. You have experiences. You are, have traumatic uh, memories, maybe, of other situations. All of a sudden, a previous memory from a different context kicks in. So you have to be prepared that, that there needs to be time and there needs to be space to deal with emotions and to deal with these responses. And I actually also turned this into, into an advantage. So also there's a, there's a chapter on this in my book even where, where I say what we underestimate is that emotions are actually a given gift to us because they indicate where our issues lie. If we're afraid, we can explore what are we afraid of. And maybe that's what we have to deal with first. If we're excited, if we're surprised, there's, there's always something that triggers that. And in that something often lies the key to our solutions. So what is it that we have to do? What is, what is it that we have to address? Or what is it that we need to know in order to be able to make our decisions? And those are all very, very big resources that we need, that we can need in a crisis, but you just have to be aware of it and not be afraid to say, you know what, I'm really afraid now of this decision, but we're still going to make it. Because acknowledging these emotions is the first step and it's actually quite empowering the way I've experienced it. So two things came up as I was listening to you. You used the word intuitive and it almost sounded like you thought intuitive was bad. So I wanted to hear about that. And then second, what is this like hegemony of rationality? Like people, do people really think that humans can ever be complete rational actors? Because in my view, we're distorting things all the time. I, I started the second part. Uh, I don't think... I, I, because also rationality is a bit like what you ask different people what's rational and they will give you different answers. I had this, I, I, I wrote about this the other day where, where I had this realization that just because I find it irrational doesn't mean anybody else does. And the same goes the other way around. And so I don't, I think it's an illusion. That's, that's just me. First part, I didn't want to sound like that at all because it's the absolute opposite. I'm a huge fan of, of, of intuition. I have really learned to just explore my intuition. In the beginning, it was just this slight little itches and twitches in the gut. Uh, I wouldn't even say a gut feeling. It was just like these small things that you, that you felt but were easily overlooked. But I have, over the years, spent a lot of time exploring my intuition. And I'm, I mean, well, really, I trust my intuition more than anything else because it's, a, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, intuition is very well researched, right? So it's not... It's not really a gut feeling. It's actually just that's how it's how it's manifesting itself. But it is basically a, a rudimentary process of decision making. It goes to your subconscious, which you didn't know. So it's it's just a quick assessment on this is this is what feels right based to, and that's where the exploration comes in, according to my values, experiences, whatever. But you haven't given it much thought yet. 
And, and I have learned that the truth lies somewhere in between. So I'm, I'm very intuitive, but I still give it a little bit of a break afterwards to not jump into it. That's what I've done also uh, many times. I just like jumped into on, on my intuition, but I'm like, no, let's give it a brief, brief a bit on it. And then I go back to it. And if it still feels the same, then it's good. And what I've also done, and this is for, for a lot of decision makers, very difficult in the beginning, but they love it once they, they do it, is I have said, like, if I have to make this decision, I don't want to be involved in, in developing the options or the choices that I have. Because only that way I can really have a, a, a pure intuitive reaction to what I'm presented. Because if I'm, if I'm, if I'm included in developing the choices, I might have a favorite already. Or I might come up with an idea and might be more difficult to let go. So the bias will always be there. Um, and I'm not saying when somebody presents me ideas, I'm not biased, but I have at least a pure access to my intuitive reaction. That's the thing I want to do. And once you have that, that's actually, uh, people love it because it, it gives them a way clearer thing. Like they, they, they immediately know this is what I want. I cannot immediately explain why, but this is what sounds good to me. And that's then a, a way more... Uh, straight and clear intuitive reaction than, than it would be otherwise. Hmm. I'm just cataloging a reason why I'm like, oh, that's why I did that thing. So I'm just taking that in for a second. So I almost hear where this goes. I'm, I just talked to somebody recently for the podcast about conflict resolution. And um, it almost sounds like what you're doing is taking something from a crisis context to a conflict resolution context. But I could be wrong about that. Is that is that kind of or is there a difference between conflict and crisis? Well, yes and no. I mean, conflict is a very, I mean, it's, you know, maybe you could argue it's a form of crisis. Um, but I, I think it's, it's just way more re, uh, related to the topic of autonomy for me. Uh, conflict for many years I've, I've, I've worked with, yeah, it's, it's all about needs. And, you know, there's, of course, the factual level, where you, what you hear, and then there's all the needs that we need and that we're triggered. But then I came across um, uh, research and, and, and the idea that beyond all of this lies autonomy. And I have really, that has really grown on me. Um, before I get into that to answer the question, I, I do that, but I do it also in all, all other contexts. So for me, crisis is irrespective of sector, it's irrespective of topics. And I'm a huge fan of transferring skills from one sector to the other because i think that's just really that that expands your options significantly if you do that if you don't stick like this is how, how we've always done it in the humanitarian world for example this is how we've always done it but if we go out and see like well so how does a mechanic think about certain things it might just trigger something in you and give you a chance to to look at things differently so uh i do transfer it in conflict resolution but vice versa also i transfer conflict work into crisis and back to the topic of autonomy, I think what is so important when it comes to, to autonomy and conflicts is that this is for us the non-negotiable. We all have that. We have our space or we have our, our, our sphere that is non-negotiable for us, where we are our own lords and we are the ones that actually take the decisions and have space to maneuver and create our options. And if this is threatened and when, and, and ironically, you really can go to the, to the smallest of conflicts when somebody just told you something and you exploded at the person and completely irrationally, and then you reflect, well, maybe you told me what I needed to do and I didn't want that because that's in my space. And this autonomy looks different for everybody. That's what makes this so difficult. Some have a bigger uh, space or need for a bigger sphere. 
Others have an inflated sense of autonomy. Others, again, have a very small one. And this is still, this remains non-negotiable. And because it's non-negotiable, it's so easily triggered. And once you get to that in a conflict, then it becomes interesting because then it's, it's about really clarifying, okay, I understand I, I trespassed an area I shouldn't have trespassed. And then you can go for all the needs and everything. But it was first the acceptance of, okay, I, I, I see you and I see your autonomous space and autonomous uh, sphere, and I all respect that. I have all this week been working with couples who are separating, navigating their co-parenting plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this stuff is hard because if there is an autonomous sphere, but a ch child is involved, it becomes quite dicey, mm -hmm. right? Because there can be differing views about yep. whose autonomy are we talking about here? Mine, yours, and our children's. And, uh, I, this autonomy thing, I, I honestly do not have a, an opinion. I mean, I, I'm agnostic. I'm always holding mm. all these different selves. But there's such a problem in, in our world today about hyper-individualism. And it's almost like autonomy has become religious and zealotous. Like, we don't know how to cooperate so much anymore because we're all protecting our autonomy. It's, um, so I'm constantly thinking, because I think I'm, I've got a pretty wide sphere of autonomy. Well, no. I like to collaborate, but they, I do have, I've gotten to learn, I think from running sidewalk talk, I've had some people cross some lines with me that I didn't know I had until it was crossed. And I went, mm. oh, that is so not okay with me. <laughs> mm. But yeah. at the same time, I, I see the, there's just this binary between autonomy and collectivism that I am still trying to navigate. And I'm just curious what, what you noodle in your own mind around this idea of autonomy versus collectivism. And they're and they're probably very influenced from my from my passion and the privilege that I had to spend with indigenous people around the the world um, because their their worldview to the little degree that I got an insight into it circles a lot around balancing these two and it's all a balancing concept so this dualism right they also think in dualism but at the same time they know one couldn't exist without the other so um, I couldn't be autonomous if there wasn't a collective for example. Is there a story and that you could share that comes to mind? Bring I, me into a story a little bit. Um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a few stories I could share. I mean, um, what really affects, I, I, I share a lot of this story that I was, when I was with the Aborigines, um, and this was pure coincidence. Um, I was really in a bad place in my life. I needed to kind of, I, I came out of Afghanistan, was a bit disillusioned, didn't know what to do next, um, very mentally drained, and found this. A course online which was called traditional leadership and mediation training and i thought like oh that sounds like fun and it was at an aborigine community in um, uh, north of australia on an island secluded community sober community and they had engaged with a in a collaboration with the darwin university at that time uh, who had a master's in indigenous knowledge part of that master's was a ritual so i not being from australia but i still like I gave it a shot i'm like okay you know it was open for international, so why not? That turned out to be a misconception because they accepted me against all odds. Um, and I came there and turned out I wasn't open for internationals. But because I'm from Austria, they hadn't read my application properly. So I showed up there, the only non-Australian. Um, and we were like, yeah, there was this ritual going on. It was a conflict resolution ritual, very, very spiritual. But around that, there was a week before and after where we got a basic introduction in a way, if you want, to the concepts 
how Aborigines, for example, see, see the world, the universe, the creation and everything. It was very difficult because we were only given one rule because, and that was not to ask questions. We weren't allowed to ask questions. So there was a lot about this uh, that we wanted to know and we kept asking and they just played it back to us. Like, no, observe, listen, learn. And so a lot of it was reflections. And what it turned out to be was they just explained their, their concepts. You know, for example, the dualism of the world, there's like you belong either to one side or to the other side that's kind of determined by your bloodlines and, and history, as do all the animals, as do all the, the spirits, as do all the, the, um, uh, the, the elements. Everything belongs to one or the other side. And um, there's no predefinition of what leadership is or what, what learning is. Or, you know, it's basically it's up to you, the responsibility of the individual. But the overall responsibility for this to function is the collective side of it. So you have to contribute. You have a responsibility to learn yourself, but you have the responsibility also to learn how you interact with others, how that works. And it all starts with yourself because otherwise you can't really connect. And it was a fascinating way of, of, of combining these two things. And one was the ritual then where this, uh, where this combination was put in practice because it was still so abstract for us. And so we were, were taken into the forest one day and told to undress like literally undress and we were given this little cloth that we could could kind of cover ourselves up with and then we we heard already rhythm and singing outside the in outside the bush and we were told well now we have to dance and of course not asking questions we weren't allowed to ask what's going to happen so basically the same you know observe listen learn because we didn't know what we needed to dance or anything so we walked out and there were a thousand or two thousand people there was lots of people they came from all over all over the the, the island we're sitting there and we just danced 40 people, men, women had a separate dance. And the idea was really to learn this dance as quickly as possible from the few younger ones in the, in the first rows that knew it um, and become one. So the idea was really to have this, uh, to become a synergy, to have like, that it looks like we're all in sync. And the elders would only stop clapping that particular rhythm when, if they were happy with our syn synchronicity. And then there would be a new dance and this went on for six to eight hours and what it did is is the internal process is so interesting because because in the preparation before that you didn't ask you weren't allowed to ask questions so you were trained a lot in in self-reflection and focusing on yourself um, and that was the only way you could learn that dance so you were connected with the people who knew it but then you had to really let go of there's a thousand people here laughing at me um how am I going to look? You know, all these external perceptions. So it was all about you. And like, I've, I'm, I have to be in touch with myself here right now in order to be able to function in that system. And this was a unique experience because what happened afterwards at the end of the day, and then I cut this, cut the story, but, but at the end of the day, once we were tired and this went over a whole week, but every day at the end, we were given some food. There was a symbol that we drew into the, what we built on the sand, uh, sat around this in its complete silence. And we're told to reflect on, on, on conflicts that we have ongoing and explore the negative thinking that is connected to it and take it and symbolically put it back. The symbol symbolized basically the, the earth, put it back to where it came from. And I cannot tell you how easy that was because we were so drained. We were so focused on already focusing on ourselves that the access to these negative emotions, the needs, the triggers were so easy and so clear that it that it was also possible to really grab it and actually literally let it go 
you felt a lot easier. So this was a longer story now, but but to illustrate to you this, yeah. That, I like the long story. Don't stop yourself. <laughs> there's the there's this individualism. There's this getting to know yourself, being in touch with yourself in order to function in the big picture and, and, and understanding that I'm part of this. So I deserve the acceptance here, but I also have to give acceptance because others are different and they will see it different. And it's always a balance. Sometimes I'm more important and sometimes the, the group or the community is. Um, this is one of the takeaways that I had. And I'm very, very impacted by, by this and similar stories from other places where it's less about me, but it's more, it, it's, it's, it's not less about me than it is about the community, but it only works if both of them are considered. Okay. So I've <laughs> got to reflect this back because I'm so glad I asked you for a story and I'm so glad that you told the whole, it, you didn't rush, you, you allowed yourself to tell the whole thing. What's happening in me is there's, I'm confronting something in myself as I listen to you. And I, I probably am going to have to chew on this story as I think probably listeners, I hope listeners will chew on this story. Because I think we give a lot of lip service to inclusion and collectivism. But there were two things that I think I heard you say I had to do. One, I had to gauge in a practice in community for six to eight hours of surrendering utterly mm -hmm. to the collective. Five days in a row. Okay, so for five days in a row, mm -hmm. where I didn't get to let my mind start to dictate. I had to really enter into this space. And that enabled me to carry that skill forward in my life. Mm -hmm. I think we talk about having this skill, but it's an embodied earth-based skill. Yes. Second, I heard you say that because you were so you called it exhausted or broken down, but I, I hear you also saying, I had access to something new in me to the point where I could crystallize, to use my psychobabble language, my neuroses, and grab it really fast because you could mm -hmm. make this distinction inside between the collective, the autonomy, the triggers, the, the negative thinking, and you could just see it so clearly because mm -hmm. of this practice. And all I could think of, all I could feel as I was listening to you was how do Western societies do this right now? I feel like everyone's yelling at each other saying we need to be doing this. Mm -hmm. But there's actually, you know, you know, we've got a bunch of white folks with college degrees that are sort of writing research and think pieces about mm -hmm. it but there's no practice Ooh, and i just had a thought it's, and it doesn't come from ego but i think sidewalk talk is trying to do that when yes. we sit on sidewalks yes when, like some people get too caught up in oh we're out there helping homeless people i'm like we are not helping homeless people we're trying to do what you just talked about sitting there on the land trying to practice collectivism and for, for me, it is when I, when I heard the introduction to the, when I got the invitation and I heard the introduction, your, you telling about sidewalk uh, talks and how it came about was exactly that for me. It was the realization there's, I don't have to just be somewhere, but I'm actually looking at the path of getting there. And there's so much to see. There's so much to explore. And, and for me, 
I don't have an answer, but my approach to it is slowing down, simplifying. And I think what, what the paradox is that we, we communicate about the need to do this precisely on the, on the channels that contribute to it being so difficult. And this is a bit of a paradox because, of course, whether it's digitalization or social media or, or other things, they are distractors, right? And I didn't have there any distractions on this island. And the only there was no distractions, and the, I mean, yes, there were arguably a thousand distractions of the people around, and my lack of knowledge of the dance and self awareness of how I look, probably, and and all that, but that disappeared because of, because I had to be immersed in the situation and I let go, and then initially I didn't, right? The first few attempts, are, it was really you were embarrassed, and the embarrassment disappeared very very quickly because. Also, physical exercise and the physical activity contributed to that, but it was also really like, let go. You're not going to get out of this. And you don't want to get out of it either. Um, this, is what you, this is what you're here for, to test yourself. Observe, listen, learn. And, and what was also caveat to this situation was when it came to leadership afterwards, because that was also part of the, the whole experience. So when you felt comfortable enough, you had to push forward and be in the first row to actually show the dance to the ones behind you. So the aim was also they, they wouldn't stop, even if we were synchronized already, the elders wouldn't stop if they hadn't seen you present yourself as, you know, are you ready to lead? Um, are you so comfortable with this or just following this dance now and trying to be immersed? Or because they also think about everything as a system without explaining it in the, in, in the technical terms that we in the West do, but you, sometimes you have to lead and sometimes you follow. And if you only follow, you create an imbalance. So it was this whole dynamic that was there. And, how we can do this in the West? Um, I do. I do feel there is an increasing number of people who are aware of that because I think the, the lack of awareness. I think deep inside we all want to own a surf cafe somewhere in a in a on an island or a similar things, a yoga retreat. So, but this is not the awareness that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the awareness what it does to me if I actually let go. Um, and I don't think many people let go uh, because holidays one week somewhere is not letting go. Um, and I mean, some um, you could argue a, a run like you've done before this, or you know, a meditation practice if you're used to it. Yeah, that that can help you let go. But you still have to you have to transition back in without losing that beautiful feeling that you've just created. And this is often the, the tricky thing. Not I can have a wonderful day, I simplify my life, not be on social media or anything else, not on the the computer. But then I get an email that kicks me completely back, and everything's gone. And that, that just requires work. Like I had these five days doing this intensely, six or eight hours every day. I mean, the physical exhaustion, I forgot about it in the end because it was such a, such a cleansing experience in many ways. Um, but I also came back into the real world. And the tricky thing was that it took me, it, in, it impacted me, yeah. But I really only six years ago, this whole thing was nine, nine years ago, but it's five, six years ago, it hit me what happened on that island. So there were a few years incubation period before it's like, you know what? It was way more than you actually understood uh, back then. And since then, I've been become way more conscious and way more aware of my own needs, what it does to me, how I can create these spaces. And that for me is a game changer. I feel very emotional, like I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Please, I think crying is, crying is good. Crying is a, is a great, oh. great thing that's given to us. <clears throat> as i listen to you there's something i think that we're 
when I sit with clients and I sit with people suffering, I, that be, there's something so touching about this statement, we ought to let go. Just the way you said it just really pierced my heart. Um, so that was number one. And then the second piece was um, the permission that you gave yourself to not know what the fuck happened for three years. Because I think yep. I'm in the same point with Sidewalk Talk. I'm, I'm now writing a book about it. And I were, met with my book coach yesterday and I started bawling. Because I think it really, for the first time, and I'm so glad I hired a book coach because she, she is like those tribal elders sitting in a circle around you. She's confronting me mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. to go deeper with it go deeper with it. And I just, it, I, I burst it out yesterday and she was, oh, now we know what your book is about. And now we know why you listened on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was supposed to have to know the whole time I was doing it. And I just didn't, I didn't. Yeah. So there's something this, about this your sharing so... that opened me, I think, to the permission. You give me permission for something, Tom. Well, I'm I'm glad you see it that way because listening to you is also we don't we don't need to always know, and mm. this is also this this is yeah we're 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 primed to be always curious and need to know and have all the answers. Sometimes they they actually hurt us and we wish we hadn't known. That's the irony of it. But but in those situations, I still don't know where my path is going to go, but I know what I want to have on it and what I don't want to have on it. And I start working now through that backpack that we carry with us that is so big. And sometimes, you know, like I, I had to think now of my kids again. The other week, I, I emptied uh, the backpack of my, my son, my older one. And I found an old, uh, uh, an old lunch bag. It was already very old, right? Um, but we had packed this bag since I don't know how many times and unpacked it and never found this. And it's the same for, it's the same for us. We, ha- we don't have always old, we don't have only old lunch bags in there. Sometimes we might have a little gift that we got from someone or it, there's also beautiful things that come to the surface that we have forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And, and taking the time to look into that backpack and not just move forward to, because what we forget is that moving forward, we just throw things into it mm-hmm. and it becomes mm-hmm. heavier and heavier. If you never just look, okay, this, I don't need anymore. This I keep, Oh, wow. I've forgotten about this. Can I use this for something now? Mm-hmm. And and that's the process that I think you and I, uh, I had a similar process for, for my book. Um, and I can't wait for yours to, to, to read yours because there's definitely a lot, of, a lot of those gems in there and your own realizations as much as people, what other people shared with you. And I had, I had the same. It was sitting down, opening that backpack up and said like, wow, there were some brutal things I'd forgotten about. But there was also, hmm, I'd actually forgotten that was there. Great. Mm-hmm. Now I know. What can I do with it now? And, uh, and for me, that was just, um, that's great. And I will continue doing this. And it doesn't have to be happen every week. That's the other thing. It happens once in a while. Um, mm-hmm. And that's enough. Mm. Well, we've been on quite an unexpected journey together today. We've been dancing in Australia together. We've been to Afghanistan together. We've been to Norway and Austria together. We've been on a, a path to nowhere, but knowing what we want in our backpack together. I really like that idea. I don't know where I'm going, but I know what I want on the I know what I want on the path. That's really great. Um, we have a ritual for ending our conversation that yeah. started accidentally, and I quite like how it's unfolded, which is that I 
stop speaking with you and have you speak with all these people that sit on sidewalks around the world. So you're not talking to me. Well, I'm one of them, but there's all of us. A words of wisdom or a wish, and it, whatever comes to you, free to say. I wish I would have take get more chance to to talk to you sitting on the sidewalks because I've seen I've done this many times in my life and uh, every time I did it I walked away with incredible insights and an incredible story. So I just want to encourage each and every one of you to not forget doubt question whether your story is worth telling or that you have a story because it is everybody has a story and every story has insights uh, can be a happy one can be a sad one it doesn't matter uh, and telling it will make a difference for you so don't ever stop doing that and i want to thank you for everybody who shared their story with me so far amazing thomas it was really unexpectedly wonderful to be together today Thanks for being here. And for everyone that wants to learn more about Thomas and his book and his work, you can go to the show notes and find out all about him. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.